Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, November 3rd, 2017. We're going to continue listening to Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley's sermons on the solas of the Reformation. And you'll notice a slight deviation from the normal sola script by Pastor Charmley. But we will give him a pass. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine far Far, far, far is far, 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 really far from what God's word says. It's like not even close. I mean, it's like worlds apart. Anyway, you kind of get the idea. So in order to properly learn what scripture says, that requires you to be able to recognize false teaching when you hear it, as well as, you know, good teaching that placards Christ and works through biblical texts correctly, that kind of thing. So today we're going to continue with what we began last Friday as uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley is preaching on the solos of the Reformation. Today we'll be hearing from him a sermon on grace alone, uh, emphasizing Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, and then a slight deviation from the script, if you would. Um <laughs> He's going to—the next sermon—so we'll take a break between the sermons. The next sermon after that is titled Guilt, Grace, and Glory, and it's based on Romans 3.28, which great grace, guilt, and glory is—well, that's not really the sola of the Reformation. But as you will see, what he's trying to do is kind of flesh out— the uh, the solas themselves from another text. So y- you get the idea. So without any further ado, here is Sermon Numero Uno, or actually number three in the series, titled Grace Alone from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. 
Here's Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley, Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Hanley, Stoke-on-Trent in the United Kingdom. Here we go. Let us read together from the Holy Scriptures, from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians and chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is writing about the, the wondrous thing that is salvation. The marvelous reality of what it is to be a Christian. To be chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. To be predestined to the adoption of sons by Christ Jesus. To have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of of sins. And so Ephesians chapter 2. And you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great grace with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both had access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, 
being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. Our text this evening is found in the chapter that we read, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We are looking in these evening sermons as we approach and follow on from the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing the 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg. We're thinking of the five solas of the Reformation, these five statements that sum up the Reformation rediscovery of the gospel. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And all of these sum up the rediscovery of the gospel, what the gospel means, what the the great message of Christianity is. And so this evening we are looking at the the third in the list. You might find slightly different orders. Some will put grace before faith, others faith before grace. We looked at faith last week and so it's grace alone this week. But of course our text could be used for either grace alone or faith alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And the great question of grace alone is this. Is our salvation something that we contribute some sort of deserving, some sort of merit to? Or is it all a gracious gift of God? Is that word alone again because hardly anybody believes in salvation by works alone. But many, many people believe in grace plus works or works plus grace. But what... Grace alone means is this, that our salvation is brought about by the grace of God alone, without anything that we do adding to it in the sense of deserving it in some way, that it's all given to undeserving people. And so we have, first of all, this point of salvation. What is salvation? Secondly, that it's by the grace of God. And thirdly, it's by the grace of God alone. Salvation. What is salvation? Salvation is a rich, deep word that covers all kinds of things that are found in the Bible. In fact, if we were to read through Ephesians chapter 1, we would see that salvation includes he chose us in him, verse 4, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, 
having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. In him we have a redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him... In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Isn't it an amazing thing just to to read that rich language? Every sentence, every clause is packed full of so much. And salvation is such an amazing thing. We can look at this and we can see that there is predestination. That is to say that God beforehand determined whom he would save. There is predestination. There is adoption to be brought into the family of God. There is redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. There is Christ dying on the cross, the great act of salvation that we are saved by the blood of Christ. So there's a sense in which the Christian can say, I was saved when Jesus died on the cross Because it's a finished work, Jesus said, it is finished. But there is then this gathering together. You heard the word of truth, that's the outward gospel call. How shall they hear without a preacher? And that's why the word is proclaimed that Christians... Share the gospel with other people. You've got those who are full-time missionaries, if you will. Those whose primary work is to preach the word. But every one of us, Jesus says, you are my witnesses. We are witnesses to him. We bear witness so that people hear the gospel. And that's the general gospel call. Many are called, Jesus says, but few are chosen. But then there's the inward call by the Holy Spirit. You trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But then, 
there is the redemption of the purchased possession. That is the resurrection of the dead. The glorification of the believer. When we are transformed, raised as Christ was raised. When we are glorified. So the apostle writing to the Romans gives what's been referred to as the golden chain of redemption. It's a golden chain because all the links link together. They hold together. And it's golden because it's glorious and precious. For whom he foreknew, Romans 8, 29, whom he foreknew. Now to foreknow here, it's whom he foreknew. Not whom he foreknew would do something, but it's a personal knowledge. It's not a, you know, so often people say, well, foreknowledge means that God knows who's going to believe beforehand. But that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say whom he foreknew would believe. It says whom he foreknew. And to know somebody is a personal thing. It's the difference, you see, between knowing about somebody and knowing somebody. And there's all the difference in the world between knowing about somebody and knowing somebody. We all of us can say of Her Majesty the Queen, we know about the Queen. But I don't think any of us here can say, I know the Queen. Now, my mother, the church where she goes, there's a, a, a member of the church, one of the leaders, who can actually say, I know the Queen. Because he was a member of the Queen Mother's household. So he can say, I know the Queen, in a way that none of us can. Now, the difference between personal knowledge, you know someone as a person, and knowing about somebody. We have a personal knowledge that God has a personal knowledge of whom he will save. He sets his love upon his people beforehand that we may know him. Because he first knows us. So he foreknew, then he predestined those he set his love on before time as Father, twas thy love that knew us earth's foundation long before, as the hymn writer puts it. And then he predestines, he is going to bring this person to glory. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So there is predestination before time. Then there is the calling in time. The justification, we looked at that last week, what it means to be justified means that you are declared righteous by God. It's a law court term. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Well, hang on a minute. 
We're not glorified, are we? We're passing away. Our bodies are decaying. We're not in glory with Christ yet. We're not. But it's absolutely certain that every believer will be glorified. And so Paul can speak of it in the past. Because it's as if it's already accomplished. Because it is accomplished by Christ. It's so certain it might as well already be. So marvellous then is salvation. And salvation we see is from sin and it is unto unto God. When Jesus was to be born, the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That Jesus saves from sin. And it's very important to emphasize a salvation from sin. It's not a salvation simply from hell. It is a salvation from hell, but that's because it's a salvation from sin. So that the idea that so many people have, well if you say that salvation is by grace alone, aren't you an antinomian? Because you say that the law doesn't save. Well, the law doesn't save. But we are saved from sin. So it's not a license to sin. If Christ sets people free, then he sets people free from sin. Because sin is slavery. We are saved from sin. But also... We are saved from the wrath of God that is due to sin. So there is a salvation from, from the love of sin, from the love of the world and the things that are in the world, out of darkness. And a salvation for God into his glorious light. A salvation to enjoy God. To, as the the Westminster divines put it, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what salvation, that's what we're saved to do, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is heaven after all but the continual enjoyment of God? And of God himself, not just heaven. That's why I can never wrap my head around the the Muslim or the Jehovah's Witness who is expecting to be saved but not to meet God, not to have fellowship with God. I just can't comprehend it. Now I can comprehend why an unregenerate person would want to have an eternal life away from God because what the unregenerate want is the stuff that God gives us. But what the Christian wants is God. We are saved for God. And we are saved, he predestines his people to be conformed to the image of his son, to be like Jesus in the character. That is to say, to be holy and good and separate from sin as undefiled. 
to be righteous and to enjoy God, to love God. As Jesus loves the Father, so we love Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So there is this wondrous thing called salvation, which is a, it's like a diamond with all the facets that gleam and glitter. And we see the majesty of the diamond because the diamond is so many different things at once. So salvation is so many different things at once that it's a marvelous thing. Salvation. Secondly, salvation is by the grace of God. It's all about the grace of God. Now, grace means unmerited favor. That is to say, something is grace if the people who receive it, the person who receives it, doesn't deserve it. Grace and merit have nothing to do with each other. It's not a matter of justice or injustice for that matter. It's a gift. Grace is giving a, a free gift. Grace is the child at Christmas time receiving a present because the parents love the child. Grace is giving something to someone just because. Because you care for them, because you love them. With no thought, this person deserves that. Now, grace has nothing to do with deserving. Salvation is all about grace. And so, the writer of the Hebrews puts it, this way, he speaks in Hebrews 2 of our salvation, of what Jesus did. He says, but we see Jesus, Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. By the grace of God, Jesus died the atonement is all about grace. The death of Jesus is all about grace. The redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, is according to the riches of his grace. And isn't it marvelous that it's according to the riches of his grace? It's not out of the riches of his grace. Put it this way, you see. A rich man... He has many riches and somebody comes to the door collecting for a worthy cause and the man pulls a fiver out of his wallet and drops it in the collecting box. That man gave out of his riches. But another, another rich man perhaps, the same collector come, the collector say, um, and the rich man says, come in. And he gets out his checkbook and he signs a check for £50,000. According to his riches. That is to say that the gift is according to how rich the man who gives it is. It's according to his character. And so when God gives his son, it's according to the riches of his grace. 
It's not a, a giving a little bit and keeping so much back, but it's giving all that he can give. And it's all of grace. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Paul tells us. And are justified, if any are justified, they are justified according to his grace. Justified by grace. Right with God by grace. And the grace is seen in this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says to his readers. Who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich, not in earthly things, but enjoy the riches of heaven, the riches of eternity. All of grace, you see, Christ humbles himself, comes to us. He died upon the cross for sinners. It's all of grace. The atonement is of grace. God sent his son, grace began the work. We sang that wonderful hymn, Philip Doddridge, grace is a charming sound. Grace first contrived a way to save rebellious man. And all the steps that grace display, which drew the wondrous plan. The Bible gives us a history of grace. And we know that the application of what Jesus did, Christ's offering, is all of grace. Rebellious people deserve to be punished. Rebellious people deserve the penalty. But instead, Christ takes the penalty himself. And then to whom is that grace given? To whom is the atonement applied? Not to the deserving Because there aren't any. But to whomever God will, I will have mercy, God says, upon whom I will have mercy. And none of us can earn that. That was the most offensive thing that Jesus said as far as the Pharisees were concerned. That he spoke about grace to sinners. He spoke about forgiveness. But the Pharisees were all about, well, you have to... Earn it, you have to keep it by your works. But God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. Salvation is by the grace of God. It's not about who deserves it. God is no respecter of persons, to use the old language. He has no partiality. I have to say that God doesn't like rich people more than poor people or poor people more than rich people. God doesn't like white people more than black people or the other way around. He has no partiality. He doesn't look at people and look at things about them and say, well, because this person has that characteristic, I will save them. But his mercy is gracious. And it is by grace alone and that's the great word of all all of these reformation slogans these solas the vital word is the word alone there are so many people who think that the, the great issue in the 16th century in the reformation was whether we are saved by works or by grace it wasn't 
The issue of the Reformation was never the necessity of grace. You read the Roman Catholic canons and decrees of the Council of Trent, which codified Roman Catholicism, and they say, whoever denies that grace is necessary for salvation is anathema, is accursed of God. But then why the Reformation? Because they also say that if we say that we are saved by grace alone, that also is anathema. The Roman Catholic position was and is that we are saved by grace plus works. That it is a matter of grace plus. The den- what is denied is the sufficiency of grace. And we see this all over the place. The Mormons have in their Book of Mormon the statement that we are saved by grace after all that we can do. And by that they mean you do your best and God does the rest. That is not the gospel. That's a denial of the gospel. That's not salvation by grace alone. It's salvation by our works plus God's grace. And there are these subtle ideas that creep in. There are those who speak as if God looks and he sees your potential. He saves you because of your potential to change the world. That's a denial of grace alone. God doesn't see in us when he looks on us, anything but sinners who deserve to go to hell. And instead of sending those sinners to hell, he saves them by his grace, simply because he will save. He will redeem salvation, as the prophet Jonah put it in the belly of that great fish, salvation is of the Lord. God does it all. We don't do anything. There was Jonah running away from God. God said, go and preach to Nineveh, that great city. And Jonah said, no thanks, and hopped on a boat going the other way. And God sent a storm. And it was revealed through the storm that Jonah was running away from God. And Jonah ended up saying, well, throw me off the ship and the storm will cease. And when they couldn't get to land, they said their prayers, they said, God, please forgive us, picked Jonah up and threw him off the ship, and a great fish swallowed him up, and God kept him alive inside the great fish, and Jonah in the great fish realized salvation is of the Lord, this is what God does, it's not what we do, it's not something that we can somehow earn or deserve. The Apostle Paul writes about this grace of God and salvation by grace alone. Romans 4, 4. Now to him who works, the wages are counted as, are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. You see this, he says that 
Works and grace are the opposite of one another. You can't have works and grace together. Physicists tell us that there is something called antimatter. And if you have matter and antimatter, you can't possibly bring them together. Well, you can, but if you do, there's an enormous explosion and they both annihilate it. The same with works and grace. You can't take works and grace and bring them together and get something. Because they annihilate each other. They cannot be mixed. They're like oil and water in that sense. There is either grace or there is merit works. But you cannot mix the two together. Romans 11, verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You can't mix the two together. It doesn't work. It's all of grace, all together. And the grace of God is both necessary and sufficient. Nobody is saved without the grace of God. And the grace of God is enough to save. And we can add absolutely nothing to it. Can you imagine the very idea that our works, when our best is stained and marred with sin, our all is nothing worth. And we try to add that to the grace of God. You can't add a negative And get a positive. You only bring something down by trying to add a negative to it. So it is with the grace of God. Grace alone. And you see, if it's grace plus works, you end up with a situation where you're saying, well, have I done enough? The Mormon is faced with this when they read that we're saved by grace after all that we can do. And the Mormon then asks himself, asks herself, have I done enough? And there is never enough. Because this idea of salvation by work says, as Martin Luther puts it, the law says, do and it is never done. The gospel says believe because it is done already. Because Jesus says it is finished. But also, if it's our works plus grace, then what is it makes all the difference? It's our works. And so we can boast. And so the Pharisee could be very proud. I thank you, I'm not like other people. And the Pharisees were very proud of what they did. And they boasted. But the believer says, it's all of grace. And we are humble. But also we are humble and confident. Because you see our confidence is in the right place. It's in God. If all our hope is founded in God. Then we can be absolutely confident. And absolutely humble at the same time. Because our humility is when we look at ourselves. And then our confidence is in God. And then everything's the right way around. 
But in a works system, all our confidence ends up being in ourselves and what an awful mess that leaves you in. But it is by grace alone and so we are set free from that constant worry, have I done enough, am I good enough? The answer is no, of course. And we are set free from this present worry to say, God is enough. His grace is sufficient for me. Salvation is by grace alone. Salvation. That wonderful, glorious thing that has so many facets, like the most precious diamond imaginable. All of it is of the grace of God from beginning to end. And he's by the grace of God alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. To him then be the glory. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to take our first break. Actually, our only break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard. On this edition or any previous edition, Self-Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. Second message on the solas, kinda. <laughs> Titled Guilt, Grace, and Glory. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Presents Church Day Select. Hey guys, it's Rex here again. Now I know that all of you have been hearing about the latest fad in the church called an Emmaus walk. Well, you know what I think? It's uber lame. I mean, what's so special about going on a little walk, hoping and praying that Jesus is going to show up and have an enlightenment picnic with you? It's not nearly hardcore enough. I'm starting a new fad. It's called the Road to Damascus Walk. You don't go out trying to find Jesus. He finds you. And after he's found you, he knocks you off your horse, throws you in the mud, blinds you, and then sends you on a harrowing journey to a town that you've never been to in order to find a prophet of God. It's way more awesome than an ant-infested picnic next to a scum-filled pond! Don't believe me? Well, then give it a shot. I dare you. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association 
of Lutheran churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the solas of the Reformation are legit. And the reason for that is, well, because they are. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Helps us have a firm financial basis and base that we can work from to plan our next exploits, pay our bills, stay on the air, you know, stuff like that. And uh, at the uh, at the beginning of next year, we will be launching a new project. And uh, this is a good time for you to begin joining our crew if you have been remiss in doing so. You know, it's kind of like a New Year's resolution. I, I, I understand. It's like the beginning of November, but still, you know, I'm thinking ahead to the end of the year and we'll give you details as we get closer to the end of the year. But uh, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the donate button 
Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is sermon number two. Uh, it's a slight departure from the solas of the Reformation, at least as recognized you know, by Protestant history. Um, <laughs> Pastor Char- Charmley has added uh, an extra line to it, if you would, but it's not really a sola. He's kind of building off of it. The name of it is Guilt, Grace, and Glory, based on Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Let's get to it. Here again is Pastor Charmley. And let us turn again in the Word of God to... Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, and we shall read from verse 9. Paul is here making an argument to demonstrate the whole world is guilty before God, that everybody has sinned and come short of his glory, as he says, and that therefore everybody Jew or Greek, slave or free, needs a saviour, and that saviour is Jesus. So Romans chapter 3 from verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, with their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. 
Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith, through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. Our text this morning is found in the chapter from which we read Romans chapter 3 and verse 28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. A man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now this year, unless you've been hiding under a rock, you know that this year is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Great Reformation when Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses Against Indulgences on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg when Martin Luther protested in the name of the grace of God against what had become a system of salvation by works. And we remember and we celebrate now because we had our harvest thanksgiving last week which was the Sunday nearest to the 31st, which was the day that Luther posted the theses. We are having our Reformation service, if you will, a week late compared to everybody else. But it's important to remember this. And of course, the 95 theses being posted was a beginning. It's not, well, after Reformation we can move on, but it was a beginning of a reformation that is ongoing even today, that we are the inheritors of. And at the centre of that is this great realisation a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. This is the, the essence of Martin Luther's great God-given discovery at the Reformation, that we are right with God, Not because of what we do, but because of what he has done in Christ, which we lay hold of by faith. And at this time, it's a good time to step back and to look and to look at these great gospel truths, this great gospel truth of justification. Because the great central question that Luther was exercised with, that we need to know is how can a person be right with God and the Apostle Paul here tells us that the gospel is the good news that we can be right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe and so here we see first of all the guilt Secondly, we see the grace of God. And thirdly, we see God's glory. First of all, there is our guilt, human guilt. Everybody is condemned by the law. All, verse 23, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, with very few exceptions, most 
thinking people would admit that there is something wrong in the world today. You just have to turn on the television, fire up the computer, turn on the radio, and you'll hear news about things going wrong. We've got at the moment this massive business of misconduct by MPs. Male MPs, seems to the most part, saying and doing inappropriate things towards women. We've got the business in Hollywood, in show business, and there's something wrong. What is it? But you see, people are running here, there, and everywhere. And isn't it so common for people to say, well, Kevin Spacey is seeking treatment, Harvey Weinstein is seeking treatment. Certain of these MPs, I'm sure, will be seeking treatment. In other words, they're saying, well, the problem is medical. The problem is not medical. The problem is human. That there is something deeply wrong in our hearts. Now, our modern society has lost, very largely, the concept of sin. And therefore, if something goes wrong, people do the wrong thing, what does it mean? The rush to medicate. Take this, take that, take the other thing. But there is such a thing as sin. You see, we can't deny that there's a problem. But man doesn't have the answer as to what the problem is. What is the problem? Well, people will say, well, it's society. It's education. The problem is us. And of course, it's so easy for people to overlook their own sins and to look so harshly at the sins of other people. For people to look and say, well, we're not like those people over there, these people over here, and yet we find that those people over there, these people over here, are all actually like us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Lord of God comes and the Lord of God shows us that the problem isn't just that people are ill, it's that people are guilty. That all are guilty. It's instructive to, to note how hypocritical our culture can be. Not that long ago all these people were saying wonderful things about Hugh Hefner, who was an appalling man, an appalling godless man who objectified women and now living people who did exactly what Hugh Hefner did and bought into his idea of lifestyle are being condemned for it there's no consistency in the world but there is perfect consistency in the law of God God's law is one law for everybody we read the Old Testament law and we find that there's one law for the king and the same law for the peasant. One law for the Jew and the same law for the Gentile. That everybody in ancient Israel was under the same law. It wasn't like so many of the pagan nations round about 
In the pagan nations, you have one law for the nobles and another law for the peasants. If a peasant struck a noble, the noble would have the peasant put to death. But if a noble struck a peasant and killed him, the noble might have to pay a fine if the noble was unlucky. But otherwise he could very often get away absolutely scot-free, get away with murder. But the law of God, one law for everybody. And God's law is just and equitable. It's not like the 18th century in this country you could be hanged for stealing a handkerchief. You could be hanged for stealing a loaf of bread. It shouldn't surprise anybody that violent crime was quite rampant then because obviously if you get hanged for stealing a handkerchief you might as well beat the fellow up as well and steal anything else he's got on him. And if you get seen committing a a robbery, if you'll get hanged for the robbery you might as well bump off the witness because after all they can't do more than hang you if they catch you for the murder. That's man's law, man's law so often. There's no equity there. But God's law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, is absolutely just and equitable. And God's law comes with its balance and shows that all have broken it, that we have all come short of the glory of God. And that therefore everybody is guilty before God. That it is a matter of legal guilt. The Lord of God comes and we are convicted of breaking his commandments. Commandments which are right and just and good. And all are guilty All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's the point of the law. Is to break open, break down our defences and show us we are all guilty. Not in a, a superficial way, but in a real way. A real, personal, genuine way that everybody is a sinner. Martin Luther felt that very, very deeply in his heart. In those days in Germany and in Britain and in much of Europe, if you went into a church, particularly the larger churches, you would see a gigantic painting of the Last Judgment. There's still some English churches where you can see bits and pieces of these. And in this, these paintings you'd have Jesus Christ, larger than life size often, sitting on a rainbow as the judge. And you would have, well you can see a reconstruction of one if you go to the Roman Catholic Church in Cheadle. There's a great big doom painting there. And you will see on the one hand the the righteous being received into heaven. And on the other hand the unrighteous being cast into hell. And so people were surrounded by the reality of divine judgment. They were surrounded by the reality of divine law. But they were not so surrounded by the reality of divine grace. 
The great question came, how can we be right with God? How can I be justified? And that word justified is a legal category. It means to be declared righteous by God. It means that when we stand before God on the day of judgment, that he will say, you are justified, you are righteous. He will say, come, you blessed, and enter into the eternal joy, the eternal rest that is prepared for you. It means to be accounted right by God, to be justified, not to be viewed as guilty by God, but to be viewed as righteous. Are we justified by our works? Well, Martin Luther, like many, was taught to think in terms of that, and people do naturally think in terms of being justified by their works, accepted by their works. The trouble with works righteousness, of course, is there is none righteous, no, not one. And so if you try to be right with God and absolutely honest with yourself at the same time, with your works, you end up feeling that condemnation, feeling, I can do nothing, and we can do nothing. We are guilty sinners before God, condemned by the law. So much for our first point then, the guilt of man. But secondly, there is the grace of God. The grace of God. Because the, a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace. There's a sense in which Paul didn't need to say freely by his grace. He just needed to say by his grace. So the fact that he says freely by his grace is saying pay attention to this. Look at this. Emphasize this. Remember what grace means. The grace of God is God doing for us what we don't deserve. Not giving us what we deserve, but giving us what we don't. And the grace of God is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You remember the Apostle Paul writes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. The incarnation Jesus Christ coming into the world, God manifested in the flesh. That's the absolute centre of the gospel. It, the gospel is the story about Jesus. The gospel is who this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is. The gospel is the man, a real man. Not a, a myth, a legend, a story, but a real man. A man who is God with us. The child born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger. The man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The man who died on the cross at Calvary. The man who gave himself the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Because it's focused on the cross. It's 
not just the incarnation, but it's focused on the cross. Christ came for many reasons, but chiefly he came to give himself as a ransom for many for the forgiveness of sins. And everything else is linked in with that. The cross is its like a wheel. All Christ's work we can think of as a wheel. And a wheel you've got the outer rim and all the spokes converge on the centre. And the centre is the cross. The centre is the cross. We sang earlier that beautiful hymn, There is a Green Hill Far Away. And it's, as we know, it's a Sunday school hymn. It's a, a hymn written for children. But you know we never grow beyond it, do we? It's always there. And as evangelicals, as Christians, we love that hymn. I've told the story before because it's such a wonderful story of how Thomas Guthrie, who was a great Scottish preacher in the 19th century, a man who wrote many books, preached many sermons, did many great things, as he was dying, he said, read me that children's hymn. He was a man, a man of great learning, a man with letters after his name. Read me that children's hymn, he said as he died. Because that's what we need, isn't it? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the hymn writer writes, hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. As I die, he says, Lord Jesus, hold your cross in front of my eyes so that I remember that my salvation is all about your death on the cross. God set Jesus forth as a propitiation by his blood. Now that word propitiation isn't one that a lot of people like. It means a sacrifice that takes away the wrath of God. And the people, the reason people don't like the idea is they don't like the idea of the wrath of God. But the Bible is full of the, the wrath of God. Because the wrath of God is God's justice. We hear of some atrocity like that wicked man who drove a truck into those cyclists and pedestrians in New York. And we... We are moved with anger, or we should be if we've got any humanity in us at all. We're moved with anger. That man should be punished. But our, even our righteous indignation is mixed and mingled with unrighteousness. But God is all righteousness and so he has righteous indignation and only righteous indignation, never unrighteous And the wrath of God is that righteous indignation that we know something of. And since God is altogether holy, he knows he must punish sin. He cannot look upon wickedness and approve of it. And it would be a monstrous thing to think that he could. God cannot look on wickedness and approve of it any more than we should look on wickedness and approve of it. And so his wrath is there. And then there is the sacrifice. 
And it is here where the, the glorious truth of the Holy Trinity, the glorious mystery of the Trinity comes in. For here we have God propitiating God. Not man propitiating God, but God propitiating God. And we are not to think of the Father and the Son at variance at all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Here our reason cannot fathom. Our reason finds that God is far greater than our reason. But our reason knows that God and our faith accepts and marvels and wonders that God in man gave to God a propitiation for man. And we marvel. Here is the grace of God. God the Son giving himself for man. Taking our place where he, it, it was for us he hung and suffered there. There is this atonement, this death, this propitiation in his blood. We cannot take away the cross. We cannot take away the blood that was shed for us. That's why it's so helpful, so wonderful that week by week we must come to the Lord's table and say, and hear Christ's words and hear him say, this cup is my blood in the new covenant of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. His blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. His death, he died. His blood was shed for us. And by his blood we have peace. There is no propitiation. There is no taking away of the wrath of God apart from... Well, the Apostle Paul is very bold speaking to the Ephesian elders when he speaks of... The church of God which he purchased with his own blood. With the blood of God. Of God incarnate that is. God made man. And here we see the love of God. The love of God shines from the cross. Because here is Christ taking the sinner's place. Here is Heaven's brightest glory sunk in shame. That sinners like us might trust him, might bear his name. What a marvellous thing it is, the grace of God, how it amazes us, how it should fill us with amazement. That here is somebody, here is a man and his work, Jesus Christ. And we are to believe through faith. We are to trust him. To trust what he has done. To trust who he is. That he is able to save unto the uttermost all them that come to God by him. As a word always to remember. He is able to save unto the uttermost. He is a propitiation and he is received by faith. We, we trust him. We trust that he is a saviour, that he is the saviour and we trust him to save us. 
Not enough, you see, to have an intellectual knowledge that he's saviour. There must be an active trust. Christian faith has a beginning, but it never has an end in the sense that we always rely on Jesus. All through our lives we have to say, Jesus, I am trusting, trusting. All through our lives we say, I am trusting thee, Lord Jesus, trusting only thee. Trusting thee for my salvation, full and free. We trust him. Our faith has an object. And that object is this glorious man. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Set forth as a propitiation by his blood. And here, here we find our resting place. Here we see the grace of God that he gave the Son for us. And so we come to our third and final point which is the glory of God. God is glorified in the cross. May it never be, the apostle says, that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see him. In all his glory. Because in the cross. There is demonstrated both the justice of God. And the mercy of God. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. To demonstrate his righteousness. To demonstrate verse 26 at the present time. His righteousness that he might be just. And the justifier. Of the one who has faith in Jesus. For a human judge to justify the guilty is monstrous. It's an abomination. When the guilty is justified by a human judge. But God justifies the guilty by taking the guilt upon himself in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree. The enormous weight, the enormous load of human guilt was on the Saviour land. He bore our sins. And because he took our guilt, he took our place... Therefore he shows the justice of God. Because he takes all the guilt of the world on himself. All the guilt of man on himself. And he dies. He took all our guilt. And he said then, well the wages of sin is death. I will take the full penalty of sin for all my people. And he died. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He takes the fullness of our guilt upon himself and then he pays the full penalty of that guilt. He is therefore the great demonstration God is just. God must punish sin. But then also it is the revelation of the grace of God, the mercy of God, the glory of God in forgiving because it's God who takes the penalty himself. We must remember again the mystery of the Trinity. So many people attack the cross and they speak as if Jesus is someone completely separate from God. But he is God with us. He is God the Son. He is not separate. 
He is distinct from God the Father. But again, at this moment, our categories start to break down because we're thinking about the great being of God who is so much greater than we are. That Jesus is God doing for man what man cannot do. That God smites God in man for man's sin. That man may be reconciled to God. Here is the grace and the mercy of God. Total justice and complete mercy to all who believe on his name. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God glorifies himself in the atonement. But secondly, God glorifies sinners by saving them. One of the great end of our salvation is described by Paul in Romans 8 as glorification. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So our salvation ends in being glorified, that we share the glory of God, that we dwell with God in everlasting glory. And we are brought to his glory. We don't bring ourselves. A man is justified, made right with God, by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now when Martin Luther translated this verse into German, he and he wasn't the first man to do it. The Roman Catholics, make, some of them make a great big thing of this, that Luther added the word alone. He didn't. Luther quite rightly understood the, the implication here that if a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, it has to mean faith alone. It can't mean faith plus something that's not mentioned. It has to, it, if it simply says a man is justified by faith, it has to mean faith and nothing else. That we are counted right with God, not because we do our best and God makes up the rest, but because God does everything. That it is faith alone, because faith simply lays hold on the Lord Jesus Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, says the hymn writer. And faith is that empty hand that lays hold on Christ, that receives the free gift of God, which is eternal life. What a marvellous thing it is to receive. And God is glorified in the salvation of sinners and sinners are brought into his glory to share his glory that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ that we might be a people to the praise of the glory of his grace that we might be people who 
Show forth that glory. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And our justification leads us to good works. Leads us to do the right thing. To glorify God. Not the right thing to be right with God. But the right thing because we are right with God. Not the right thing to make God love us. But because God does love us. Our good works you see are the response to God's grace. They're not the cause of God's grace. God's grace is the cause of them. We know his glory. We see his glory. We show his glory. Let your light, Jesus said, so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And when God's people are God's people, that's what happens. That God's people glorify him. God is glorified in them and we share at last eternal glory the glory of the resurrection we read that wonderful passage where the apostle Paul speaks of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and he speaks of the, the glory of the resurrection body The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That we shall share his glory. We shall see him as he is, says the Apostle John. For we shall be like him. Sinners glorified by the grace of the Lord Jesus, by the atonement of his blood. And so we rejoice in this gospel that is given to us. We are reminded again by the work of Martin Luther to look at the Bible as he looked at the Bible, to read the Bible, to love the Bible. And most of all to rejoice in this great fact that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And so to look to him, to Jesus Christ, to him who alone is the saviour, to him who alone delivers us from the wrath to come. Now the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is to all who believe. And now the fullness of his salvation. We can know. Because it is a salvation to guilty sinners. It is a salvation through the grace of God in Jesus Christ in the cross. It is a salvation that glorifies God and brings us to his glory. To know him. And share that glory forever. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith. Apart from the deeds of the law. Amen. Amen.
So, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you. And the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.